This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. 16th Street Community Health Centers provide patient-centered health care, health education, and social services to thousands in the Milwaukee community. They aim to make sure the care that they provide is free from any linguistic, cultural, or economic barriers. Their flagship clinic on Milwaukee's near south side on South Cesar Chavez Drive will be able to serve even more people in its mission thanks to an expansion that will be completed by the fall of next year. The expansion will not only add more space, but provide more in-house services, such as a new pharmacy, behavioral health services, wellness classes, and much more. The expansion is made possible in part from a donation and partnership with Freighted Health. And to share more about it, I'm joined by 16th Street President and CEO, Dr. Julie Schuler. Dr. Schuler, welcome to Lake Effect. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's great to be here. So the 16th Street Community Health Center is expanding, which is great news. To start with, can you share how this major development came together? Sure. It's been a really exciting development for us. We um, have long wanted to add a pharmacy to our scope of services that we provide for our patients and community, and it's been a dream of ours for probably over 10 years. And so we've been working hard to make that dream a reality. And when this opportunity came forward, we were just very excited to move forward with it. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Like if you take away the factors that funding complicates for a lot of timelines, like how long has this need been present for you? So the seed for the dream was planted probably after we opened our Parkway Clinic, which was in 2006, a long time ago, at which time we have a pharmacy partner there that runs a pharmacy within that clinic. And we started to realize all of the benefits that came from co-location of a pharmacy. That one's run by an outside vendor that, that we lease space to. So there's some positive benefits, but we dreamed of being able to run our own where it's really ours and we can provide the services ourselves. So really it's been something that's been in our minds since 2006 or shortly thereafter. Yeah, and here the the expansion is set to open in the fall of 2024. So yes. um, there's a lot of work to be done, building to be knocked down and added to, but in addition to all the great things this will help you do, it's really going to be able to let you guys utilize the community-based strategies that you use to inform your work. So mm -hmm. especially over the past few years with the pandemic and the different ways healthcare providers had to shift and how they operate, can you share what you think are the most like important issues or trends you've noticed in the past few years that inform the design of the expansion or that the expansion will be mm -hmm. able to help address? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, let me make a comment about our community base, which is I love to say we're in and of the community that we serve. So not only are we located within the community, but we're of it. More than 50% of our board members are of the community and use the clinic. All Many of our staff members are from the community. So we really have a very firsthand touch with our understanding of our community members and what our community needs. So I love that about 16th Street. We just are very much in touch with the needs of the community. And because we have a user board, we can be very flexible in changing direction or be nimble. And I think this project is one really good example of that. So what are some of the effects of COVID that we've seen? First of all, the mental health crisis became very evident during COVID. I think it was there before, but because people were isolated, it came out and was sort of augmented even further. And I think 
that there's becoming less stigma around mental health. It's certainly still there, but I think maybe because of COVID, people are more apt to seek help, more likely to say, hey, I'm having a problem. I am struggling with depression, anxiety, uh, substance use, whatever it might be. And I think they're more willing to seek help um, and, and identify themselves as having a problem. So that's, that's one effect. And so our expansion will be including additional mental health services, which I think is just a great response to that increased need in the community. I think secondly, COVID really put a stress on our healthcare teams, our providers, physicians, nurses, other advanced practice practitioners. And so We've really been searching for ways to decrease the burnout amongst our providers. And the pharmacy that we're planning for our expansion will really help us do that because it's an additional member of the care team that can provide additional services for the patient that takes a little bit of a stress off of the actual physician and medical assistant. I never thought of an in-house pharmacy that way. Like as a patient who it's like, okay, your script is being sent here, you go pick it up, but can you share a little more details about the significant changes and some of the ease it will allow your care providers and and your patients that come to you to have an in-house pharmacy? Yes, I think there's multiple levels where an in-house pharmacy can really help, but one is that the pharmacy staff will be able to help and assist the patients in understanding their medications. So, We serve a patient population that some may need a little more education about their medications or how to take them or what they're for. We have a lot of diabetics, which is a difficult disease to manage in terms of injections and supplies and those types of things. So the pharmacy staff will really be able to jump right in and assess what does this patient need and how can we as the pharmacy team help the patient understand their medications, understand how to take them and then help them get the refills every month. And so that's a really nice benefit. Secondly, the physician or advanced practice provider will be able to talk directly to the pharmacist and say, hey, I'm having this struggle with this patient. Why can't I get this or that to to be better? Like, for example, diabetes. Why are we, why is this just being so stubborn? And they can collaborate together to try and figure out new solutions, which is a lot easier when you're co-located in the same building you can just walk down the hall and have that consultation. Well, and the same benefit for the patient being able to, hey, I'm already here. I can go to this place instead of having to shift their schedules around and time and resources to go to a pharmacy in addition to their doctor's appointment, which for some people might be a struggle already. Yes, exactly. And think about um, young mothers with three, four kids trying to load them all back into a car, going to to another place to get the medication. So it's, it's really nice to have everything right there, which is a great philosophy for all of the services we provide. We try to be a one-stop shop. A bit earlier, you mentioned the mental health factors when it comes to COVID and people recognizing this need a little more and also just the influx of, of need over the past few years. Can you touch upon how the integrated mental health services model will be able to be built upon with an expansion? Sure. So, I think one of the keys to integration is something I just mentioned, is the co-location. So the providers, both the medical provider and the mental health provider, will be able to be co-located, and therefore they can interact together. We have case conferences from time to time where people can discuss what's happening with this client, this patient, that how can we do even better to help them. So the co-location allows for a collaboration that 
is, I think, much stronger and much easier to achieve. And then the second thing is a shared electronic medical record where both the medical provider and the behavioral health provider are documenting in the same exact record. So even if the providers maybe aren't having a verbal conversation with each other, they can see exactly what each other is doing in the electronic medical record um, in real time. And that's a real advantage to be able to understand the whole patient, understand that patient's needs from a more holistic view that incorporates both mental health and medical. Definitely. And on the note of collaborations, now this is outside of patients that we're talking about, there's a partnership with Freighter that you guys have. And in addition to grants, uh, there was a donation from Freighter to make sure that this expansion could happen. Can you share what kind of relationship you've had with them? And is it commonplace either in Milwaukee or other places in Wisconsin for a major healthcare provider to partner with community clinics? Because me on the outside, I would assume it doesn't happen too often. So Freighter has been an absolutely amazing partner for us. They have been not only very generous with their funding, but also with assistance in terms of their treasure, their talents. Um, They've given us a lot of support in terms of we have a Freighter leader on our board of directors. They've provided other kinds of resources in addition to the gift that they've provided One of the things I really enjoy about Freighter's relationship with us is that they understand and trust that we know what's best for our organization. And they allow us to guide where we want to go, and they sort of support from the background, which I think is the right way to go for nonprofit organizations. Like I said, we are in and of the community we serve. We know that community inside and out. And so the best partners are ones that allow us to do our work and support it versus maybe a a different type of funder might come in and say, you need to do this, that, and the other. And I think the best and most effective way is to allow us to do what we know we need to do and to trust us to do it, which Freighter has just been amazing in that regard. And so that's been really a wonderful relationship. I can't say enough. That's good to hear. Yeah. On the note of provider capacity, uh, you mentioned burnout is a concern, of course, in the last few years, it was really taxing. Are you doing additional efforts to recruit people for this expansion? How are you looking at for staffing? And are there concerns that you might not be able to, to fill the extra space quick enough? There's always concerns about staffing, and I think one of the other effects of COVID that's been difficult is the whole workforce shortage. It's affected us as it has the rest of the world. For us, we are best able to recruit people that are aligned with our mission, people that want to help our community, who want to give back, who are aligned with serving an underserved or vulnerable population. So all of us at the clinic are just so passionate about our mission, and it brings us all together. And so from a recruitment perspective, finding people who are aligned with that mission, once we find them, it's people come on board and love it and stay for a very long time. It's um, finding those folks who are aligned with the mission. And once we're able to do that, I think it's, it's an easy, easy fit. I think for us, the other thing that's been hard is sort of the more Uh, non-professional jobs like the pharmacy technicians, the medical assistants, those jobs where people can go to Amazon and get paid $35 an hour versus doing some of this kind of work, those have been very challenging for us to recruit. And we're doing a lot of work in in high schools and even earlier to try and say that healthcare careers are great careers. 
there's lots of variability in the types of job positions that are available. So if we're looking at this expansion on a wide lens, you know, big scale out, how many more people in the community are you estimating that you'll be able to reach and serve compared to what your capacity is now? So with the expansion, we're looking to serve an additional 30,000 patient visits a year. So that's a, that is Huge. a very dramatic uh, increase for us. Yeah, we're excited about it. Well, I look forward to its development and down the road when those doors open. But for today, Julie, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Dr. Julie Schuler is the president and CEO of 16th Street Community Health Centers. The expansion of their near Southside Clinic is expected to be completed by fall of 2024. From Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes. We break down the big political news affecting Wisconsin. I'm Ayan Silver, today speaking with Jeff Mayers, president of WizPolitics.com. He'll provide a roundup of the Wisconsin developments you need to know. Here's our latest conversation. Okay, hi there, Jeff. Hi, Mayan. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, great, so let's jump into this. Uh, some Republicans in the legislature are not happy with the state's nonpartisan top election official, Megan Wolf, staying in her post. Uh, the GOP-controlled Senate has voted to oust her. To remind some people, some in the GOP have focused in on her because of their displeasure with the 2020 election, despite the fact that it happened during a pandemic, there was negligible proven fraud, and the results were confirmed over and over again in recounts and reviews of all sorts. But can you just remind us about this procedurally tricky wolf saga. <laughs> yeah, you wonder um, if they get rid of Megan Wolf, who else would want this job? Uh, I mean, in, in many ways, Megan Wolf is standing up for clerks all over the state, really. And I think she has a lot of support within the clerk ranks, whether they're clerks in blue counties or red counties or blue cities or red cities. You know, she's, I, I think, has a lot of support in the clerk community. She also, I think, has background, you know, the Senate is much more focused on this. The GOP Senate is much more focused on getting rid of Megan Wolf than the state assembly is. In fact, the Senate president, Kappinga, who's from Delafield, encouraged Robin Voss to join him in trying to impeach Megan Wolf. And uh, basically, uh, Robin Voss said, well, let's wait to see how the process works out, see how the court challenges work out. Work out. So, you know, this is a saga. Um, you have the Elections Commission deadlocked on there uh, with Democrats trying to make sure that uh, she stayed in that post and the Republicans in the Senate pressing forward, trying to reject her and then Josh Call, the attorney general, going to court to say that the Senate actions are null and void. And so there's a lot of drama and chaos associated with the commission. And that worries people because there's a big, two big elections next year in Wisconsin. There's potentially the redistricted legislature, potentially, but you also have the U.S. Senate election with Tammy Baldwin, and you're going to have the presidential election. And if the elections commission is in chaos, what would that mean for a really close election in a purple state that could decide the presidential election. So it's a long and winding road to tell the story, but there, there, and there's a lot of drama and there's a lot of politics, but there are, the important thing is 
where will the commission be in terms of administering state elections come November of next year? So Megan Wolf is a nonpartisan head administrator of the Elections Commission, but the Elections Commission itself is made up of six people, three appointed by Republicans, three appointed by Democrats. Democrats appointed someone this past May, uh, former Milwaukee County Clerk Joe Zarneski. What's been happening with with that appointment? So uh, I guess he could be collateral damage in all of this. Uh, you know, so Zarneski uh, joins the commission. He's an appoint. He's an appointee, a Democratic appointee to the election commission. He joins the commission just before this vote that we talked about, the deadlocked vote where uh, Democratic commissioners were trying to assure that Megan Wolf uh, stayed on there by abstaining. So he joined in that, and that really made GOP senators angry. Again, they're really focused on the commission, so that made them angry. And so he had yet to be confirmed in this post. So now, recently, there was a hearing and a vote in the in a Senate committee led by uh, a relatively new senator, Dan Canodal, from Germantown. And uh, the Republicans on the committee vo- uh, rejected him. That doesn't mean the full Senate can't take him up, but they, they rejected the nomination. They, they failed to advance the nomination with their support. And, uh, you know, that brought a strong reaction from uh, Governor Tony Evers. You know, he called it idiotic. He says they're just doing it because I'm governor. And he said, you know, this is, this is not going to encourage anybody to want to, to volunteer their time for any appointment when, you know, they're treated like this. But it's sort of like if the Republicans can't get Wolf, then, you know, they'll take Zarnesky in the meantime. So, um, uh, yeah, he could be collateral damage. Again, we don't know for sure whether this will come before the full Senate um, and uh, what will happen. But, uh, you know, again, it's part of the overall drama and chaos associated uh, with the commission. So, again, we're... You know, Republicans, again, the two houses are not fully in agreement that that Wolf has to go. The Senate is much more on that path. And uh, so we'll see how it uh, it plays out. But uh, it's just another uh, step in the drama, I guess. You're tuned into Lake Effect. This is WUWM's Mayan Silver speaking with Jeff Mayers, president of WizPolitics.com. Well, on that note, Don Millis, the GOP, I mean, you've mentioned there's a lot more support in the Senate to get rid of Wolf than in the Assembly. There are Republicans who say that Megan Wolf should stay in her position as administrator, at least through the 2024 election, that she's a good person to push back against conspiracy theories, that doing otherwise would be bad for the election and bad politically for Republicans. What's the momentum among legislative Republicans to agree with him? Well, I think opinion is divided. I think those in very conservative districts, I think, are continuing to try to make up for what happened in 2020 and to blame Wolf for those, even though, you know, in many respects, she was just carrying out the, as the administrator. She wasn't the decision maker. She was the administrator. So, you know, again, these, uh, the whole 2020 election sort of lives on. And so I think that a lot of, the institutionalists within the Republican Party in Wisconsin want to move on. They want to talk about the future. They don't want to talk about the past. And I would count Robin Voss among those. I mean, I think he's, he said that. You know, he had his brush with Trump, almost got knocked off in a primary. He and others just 
just kind of want to move on, talk about the future. I think Don Millis, who is an appointee of Voss on the Elections Commission, is reflecting that point of view. Now, again, uh, <laughs> Donald Trump is still around and still exerting his influence. Uh, you know, he's exerting, he's exerting his influence in the U.S. House leadership election for speaker, uh, you know, these extraordinary times. And so these matters just don't die and go away. I think that, uh, you know, Republicans are having to deal with these every day. This is one facet of what they're dealing with. And, you know, that's also reflected in the fact that these articles of impeachment are circulated by people like Janelle Branchin, who was at part of the Assembly Committee on Elections and was right, who got booted, who, who got booted by Voss and his allies in the caucus. You know, I mean, so Robin Voss and Devin Levenhue have very big caucuses, extraordinarily big. Okay, that may change, but they have them now. They're more conservative than they've ever been in recent times. I think anything that the leaders do has to be taken into context of what their caucuses are like. They're elected by these caucuses. Uh, there are factions within the caucuses. And so I think that the leaders have to deal with those. On that note, another GOP effort in the legislature includes proposals to restrict access to medical procedures connected to transitioning for trans people, as well as limiting athletes to their birth gender. The, these are bills that the GOP has circulated along with a bill that is trying to criminalize being naked in public after several naked bike rides happened in the state. What's being uncovered in this debate? <laughs> Pun intended. Um, look, <laughs> um, so the fall of a legislative session is often devoted to message sending to the base. That, I think you have to just recognize that here's an issue that polls well within the base and could provide, you know, Republican strategists think that certainly the anti-trans stuff or at least the anti-trans athlete issue could be a crossover thing, could uh, garner some independent votes. Now, you know, I don't know, elections a long time away, November 2024. So will those things and the national messaging on that, will that peel away maybe some, um, you know, Democratic leaners and get them to go Republican? Well, I don't know. But I mean, uh, for the most part, this is about inspiring the base. People are passionate on both sides of this, of course. And I think it's noteworthy that the uh, state school superintendent, Joe Enderley, had an open letter that was impassioned, you know, saying, you know, you're, you know, you're hurting kids. But, you know, their passions are high. They're, we've seen this at some of the legislative hearings. The thing is, these bills are not going to go anywhere, right? They can pass the legislature, but um, the legislature does not have the ability. They're close to it, but they don't have the ability to override Governor Evers' vetoes. So why does the legislature do things that they know will get, won't go anywhere? Well, it's about politics. I mean, shocking. But, you know, that's what happens. JR has said on this podcast that they've re refrained from doing those more hot button things, you know, banning some books, getting involved in the culture wars to some extent throughout this past legislative session. But now that 2024 is more rapidly approaching, you're seeing some more of this. Right. And then there is usually then the other, the corollary to that is when you enter the election year, 
then there's usually some movement to do some big bipartisan things to show that they, you know, they took care of the knitting on the, uh, the base. Now they're going to say, hey, you know, we did these big things too. So that's where maybe the Brewers' maintenance bill comes through, which will require Democratic votes to do. It can't be an all-Republican thing. Maybe there would be finally some movement agreement on um, some sort of tax relief that hasn't gone through because of disputes between the governor who wants middle-class tax relief and the Republicans who have their vision uh, that doesn't fit with Evers' vision of how to use the surplus money. We've got $4 billion of surplus money sitting sitting there. You can see campaign ads about, you know, how come Republicans aren't uh, allowing Evers to have his middle-class tax cut and distribute the money. And Republicans saying, why is Evers sitting on, you know, this money? So you can see these election year things coming to bear. Now, could there be movement on the tax thing? You know, there was such um, a divide after the budget that if there is to be a bipartisan agreement, it may take a while. And maybe that's the kind of thing that can happen in a in an election year so that uh, both sides can say they achieved this bipartisan thing. All right, we'll keep an eye on all this. Thanks for filling in for JR, Jeff. It's been great having you on Capital Notes. Okay, thank you, Maya. That was WUWM's Mayan Silver speaking with Jeff Mayers, the president of WIS Politics. You can hear Capital Notes every other Monday here on Lake Effect. Later in the show, we speak with the daughter of famed muralist Ronaldo Hernandez about her Afro-Latina identity. But first, we'll be joined by some local journalists to talk about the art of storytelling and what it means for them to be a person of color in the field. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Milwaukee Films, Cultures, and Communities Festival is underway, and outside of the films to see, there's also plenty of community events to be a part of. One of them is the Art of Storytelling, which is happening tonight. Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reporter James Causey will be moderating a discussion with a panel of esteemed local journalists of color to talk all about the power of representative storytelling. Ahead of the event, some of the panelists join me now. I'm very happy to welcome Ron Smith of the Milwaukee Neighborhood News Service and Milwaukee PBS producer Everett Marshburn. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Yes. The event tonight is not only about celebrating journalists of color, but learning more about what your roles mean to you personally. So to start, what was either, say, a story you heard or read or a moment in your life that inspired you to think about becoming a journalist? Ron, let's start with you. Well, I've been nosy ever since I was probably five or six years old <laughs> and was the kid who would ask the inappropriate questions to family, like, why does Ann Doris have a mustache? So my mom would always say, you need to be an FBI agent or a journalist. And so I actually went to journalism in high school, and I worked at a paper called New Expression, which was a teen publication that went to all the high schools in Chicago. And I remember vividly wanting to be a journalist when the Chicago Public Schools went on strike. And there was no one asking students what the problems were, except for New Expression. And so we did a five-month investigative project looking at how public schools could be improved. And that really taught me about 
the agency of having a voice at the table and to be able to not only have a voice at the table, but people to listen and amplify that voice. Everett, you've been in public television producing for many, many years. What's inspired you? Well, actually, I didn't choose public television. It chose me. Mm. Um, I got in in 1968. I was a student at Morgan State University. Um, at that point in time, I was contemplating what I wanted to do. And I got a call in April from the head of the film department at what was to become the Maryland Center for Public Broadcasting. I was a junior getting ready to go into my senior year at Morgan State University, but I just changed my major into history. And they invited me in and they talked about the plans that they had. Uh, they were in the process of planning to go in the air in 1969. And they had something called the Urban Affairs Department that they were creating in retrospect to the Kerner Commission. And of course, in April of 68, Dr. King was assassinated. And that further prompted the need to get people of color in front of cameras, behind cameras, uh, able to tell people what was going on in black communities so that we could move together to create a more American society. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. What I really wanted was a summer job that would give me money to go back to school to finish the next year. They didn't have a summer job. They had a full-time starting position at entry level with no promises of anything else. And I thought about that for a while. And I took the job, finished school at night, took me longer, but I did finish, started as a production assistant the first year, and then moved into being a film cameraman the next year, the end of that first year, of, of that second year, rather. Um, they wanted a host producer, and I applied for that and got the job, and I've been doing news, public affairs, and producing ever since. That, of course, leads me to the one big question that this panel is dedicated to. It's about exploring storytelling and the ripple effects of representation. It's a, it's a big question, obviously. But what does it mean for you both personally to be a person of color in journalism? For me, it's everything. I, I've managed, I've worked for places as large as USA Today as managing editor to small weeklies to the Neighborhood News Service, which is a hyper-local nonprofit newsroom that centers the voices of people of color in Milwaukee. And this has been, I always say that it is not my job, it's my joy, because I get to do a couple of things. One is that we get to ensure that people see the totality of our communities of color in Milwaukee. Often they are painted with a negative tar, where it's, 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 if it bleeds, it leads. If there's a problem, people are there to cover it in other media. But to celebrate the brilliance and the resilience in our communities, that's what motivates me. That's what keeps me up at night because, again, it's a joy. And I have found that I've not been able to replicate that joy in other newsrooms. And so our newsroom has seven reporters and editors and two part-time photographers. And we are the most diverse, I think, newsroom in the, in the city with 90% people of color. And just to be able to help them find the stories that matter of the people who matter. And as an African-American man, there's not many spaces that allow that. So I'm really grateful 
um, for Milwaukee for supporting that. And, you know, to me, telling stories is what journalists do. But we do more than tell stories. We are really saving democracy by informing democracy. And so it's about that representation. It's about who we see on the news, who we read, is how we connect to those communities. And when we don't see people of color or when we don't see the positive things that they do, that creates a void that needs to be filled. Let me say ditto to all of that and also add that it's more than a joy. I mean, it's something that I know I was chosen to do. I take that responsibility very heavily. It's important uh, because we don't see enough representation. And what we really don't see is enough representation from all of the diverse elements in our own community. And that is extremely important. I've served two major communities, Baltimore and now Milwaukee, and I find that people are people, but we don't really get to hear the stories because so much of what we see in media is chasing events and chasing tragedy. And there's so much more to the human condition than that. And when it comes to people of color and minorities in America, our stories don't really get told in in a way that everyone can understand them that we know who real people are and what they do and and what their struggles are. And I think it's important that we let people understand that. It's also important to bring those stories to light and to let them breathe, right? You want these stories to be told well. In this field that we're in, when there's so much pressure, there's so much content to turn out, and some places are prioritizing, as you said, Ron, like covering events, rat race type of deals. But when you both are thinking about what you're working on, How do you center yourself? How do you not get overwhelmed with all the stories there are to be told, but you only have the capacity to do so much at a time? Well, I look for the stories that aren't necessarily being told. You know, one of the mantras of of the National Association of Black Journalists is to speak truth to power. And I think that's important. But there are also other kinds of stories that we need to tell. Uh, What's the average person doing in his or her community to make it better? And how often do we really see those stories, more than 10-second clips on the news? Uh, Those are the kinds of stories that really need to be fleshed out. Uh, There's so many good things going on in Milwaukee, but you wouldn't know it from from reading or even listening to much of the news because we hear about the guns going off. I completely agree, Everett. And I think one of the things we try to do is really think about the community and what it needs. And I should say communities. No one community is the same, but what do right. they need to know? What do they want to know? So, for example, when we had the mayoral race, um, when Mayor Johnson got elected, we had decided to interview all the candidates, and they came to the NNS office. And one of our readers said, that's great, NNS, but what does the mayor actually do? And we wrote a story, Ricardo wrote a story about here's what the mayor does, why it's important. And that story became one of the top stories we did that year because journalism is important, but remembering your audience. And if you have three jobs or no jobs or you you got kids, you may not be in tune to the politics. And that's politics is important because it affects what we do, who we are, where we can, how we advance. But just learning about the civic engagement part is really important to us. And so we just we really make an effort to always listen 
And so we, we go to spots not to necessarily extract news, but to, what are people talking about? What do they want to know? And I think, you know, Everett, you, talk, you talked everything that I believe is, you know, finding the stories that no one's covering so you can do original reporting. But I think a lot of times in journalism, at least in the legacy media, we have prioritized maybe winning awards over connecting to an audience and learning what the audience wants and needs. And we have to do better. And that journalism should not always be centered on conflict, but should also tell the stories, the ordinary stories of people who do great things. And we forget that a lot in this race to, we got to fill space. And it, it is very overwhelming because when you choose to do one story, you've chosen not to do another. But I think yeah. knowing your mission makes all that possible. And that's why I'm really happy to be at a nonprofit that we don't chase clicks. Now, we need money, but we don't chase clicks. We chase, uh, we are trying to connect with the readers in a way that's not extractive. Um, there's a gospel singer, Pastor Shirley Caesar, who always says that she's on the A team and the B team. Shirley's sold millions of records. She's, I think, 84. And when she means the A team, she's working with young people to stay relevant. But she always says she's going to be there when they leave. And that's important for us, not only that we show up, that we stay in the communities so that we're just not just parachuting in. Ron Smith is the project director of the Milwaukee Neighborhood News Service. And Everett Marshburn is a producer at Milwaukee PBS. They both join me ahead of the art of storytelling, exploring narrative craft and the ripple effects of representation. The event will be moderated by James Causey of the Journal Sentinel tonight at Sam's Place Jazz Cafe. You can find out more information at wuwm.com. We'll take one more break and then we speak with a Milwaukee artist about her Afro-Latina identity. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. In honor of Hispanic Heritage Month, WUWM is celebrating the rich cultural diversity of Milwaukee's Hispanic and Latino people. Today, WUWM's race and ethnicity reporter, Taryn Powell, continues her series of conversations with Afro-Latinas here in Milwaukee, speaking with community artist and muralist Rosalia Hernandez-Singh. Singh is the daughter of famed muralist Ronaldo Hernandez, who is Black and Mexican. Her mom was born in Puerto Rico. Singh has lived in Milwaukee her whole life and grew up on the city's north side in a predominantly Black neighborhood. Singh starts the conversation explaining whether she ever felt like she had to choose between the Black or Latino parts of her identity. Even though I grew up in a Black neighborhood, it was very apparent that the kids would see me as different. Mm. However, I did have a family that was right across the street that were biracial, so we felt like like they looked like us. Like, yeah. You know? <laughs> and that helped because they grew up with us, like, all our life. And to this day, we're so good friends with them. Yeah. And now they have kids and we have kids and whatnot. But... um. I wanted to kind of get into where I had to come up with how I identify myself. People would ask me, mm -hmm. 
what I was. And I remember being in elementary school, kind of taking out my fingers and kind of saying, well, I'm Puerto Rican, I'm black, I'm Mexican, American, you know, kind of giving a, a list. Yeah. And then um, having this conversation with my grandmother, and my grandmother is black, but she spoke Spanish. She was excellent in speaking Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, she was married to my grandfather, who was Mexican. So anyways, having this conversation with her and telling her how I would take out my fingers and explain to them, and people would ask me, and she would say, well, you know, you don't have to you know, tell of everything, you could just say you're Latino because that would cover all of that. Mm. So that, that kind of changed, you know, how I started to address that with people when they would ask me what I was. What does identifying as Afro-Latino mean to you? So I thought this was a very important question because I don't think I've like I said, I told you the conversation I had with my grandma when, mm-hmm. when I was little, and I don't think I heard the terminology like Afro-Latino mm-hmm. until I was an adult. So I really started to dig as an adult into kind of after my grandmother died. I started to really, really research my family's history. So that's basically my Puerto Rican, my Mexican, and my African-American family. I wanted to know about where they came from, how they came to Milwaukee, basically how all these families came together and create me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyways, doing that research and also me getting my DNA done, I found out that I had more African ancestry than I knew. And I ended up having like 38% African ancestry. And so I was like, wow, that's a lot more than I thought. So that was me getting into genealogy and learning about how we get 50%. It's random. But then also knowing that it was higher for a reason reason, and wanting to know why and where that came from. So that's where I really started to do research, started researching European and Puerto Rico, started researching African ancestry in Mexico. Basically... You know, how they come about that they, the Portuguese brought them into, uh, you know, like the Gulf of Mexico, and then they basically shipped out slaves to the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mexico, the African settlement happened um, in the, like, 1600s, so it happened a lot earlier. Mm. But there were certain areas of Mexico where they kind of settled, and, and basically they were separated from the rest of Mexico. And that was also survival. (laughs) And they kind of stayed like that for a really long time. My point is, (laughs) (laughs) is that these people were basically non-existent Mm. for so long. They were living in a certain area and then they basically, I think it was like 2016 where they created a bridge. And so now it's like we can go into the rest of Mexico, but basically we were concentrated in certain areas. And this is not because in the beginning, everybody kind of were uh, mixed with a little bit of African and kind of went all over. But these were the ones who were have a higher concentration and to this day feel like they don't have a face. They don't have a voice. And in fact, they were saying that some people were even shit. Um, basically, if you were... Afro-Mexican, 
they might have sent you, deported you to a different area because you don't belong here, <laughs> which is all, all of that is shocking to me. Yeah. So with that in mind, there is an eraser of African uh, history and indigenous history in the Latino. And there is also where when you're wanting to mix, there you're encouraged to mix with somebody who is lighter, who looks more European. Mm. That's what you're wanting because that is what's, considered beautiful that's appealing that's also a form of survival you know a caste system was created in mexico by the spaniards and on the bottom we have the africans and the very bottom the african and indigenous you know right one step above this is something that they that they did um, throughout history but it has a big influence on what's happening today as far as how we identify as latinos just the fact that they say Latino itself, it, it, it basically is giving emphasis to our um, European. Mm. If you say Hispanic, that is the, the Spanish colonization. And then you have Latino, that's the European. Um, it's a little more diverse, the colonization in Latin America. So... I feel like what's happening right now, and just even the fact that you're probably having this conversation with me now, is that there are people who are starting to kind of take more of a stance, and it's also a way of putting a face and a voice to a community that's basically been, like I said, hidden, or we basically don't see them. They're not in the forefront. The people who represent the Latinos are the ones who are white-passing, the ones who Mm -hmm. look European. And so I think the people who are doing that are trying to change that so that everyone can kind of feel included and then also to change the way that we think because that that was all through colonization that we that caste system that we have this mindset that we don't want to include that part. Mm-hmm. However, it's a central part of our culture, right? Music. Yeah. It's all African uh music. Like the foundation. It's of a it. yeah, it's definitely a foundation yeah. and culture, and those are the ones who were, had to be so resilient, you know. So they're the ones who had to really, really fight to be alive and mm-hmm. to keep like the stories and to keep the music and to keep the dancing. But we don't want to. It's like we. It's. I feel like it's a lot like the. Um, Americans, we want to take everything from black people, but we don't want to give them the credit. Mm-hmm. We, want, <laughs> we want everything that's black, but right, not right. the black people. Right, and that's beat. that's exact that's the exact same thing that has happened with the with the Latinos, and that's what I'm wanting to see change. I'm interested in, you know, what this month long recognition means to you, and and how you celebrate it. That was not something that I actually celebrate. Again, this is something as an adult and within the last maybe five years or so that I feel like it's that we're seeing more of where we're giving uh, marginalized groups a month. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, which I find kind of interesting because it should be year long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like that's basically a political kind of thing. That happens, but at the same time, it's I guess you take whatever, whatever you can get. Basically, I guess where I'm at is like, then what? And and I guess the only way is to 
I guess take take a chance when somebody asks me to ask me questions or ask me about what I do is to take the time to kind of explain what I do and um, and be intentional about it, everything that I do. I think it shows in my artwork. I, I think a lot of it I had to do from my father is that he would create these beautiful paintings of black women and it would be in our house. So I always looked at black women as, you know, something beautiful, you know, something that I admired. And then now that I am an artist and I make sure that I am intentional about putting out those faces of brown people and black people um, as a as something beautiful. I know you said it seems like more folks are starting to realize and talk more about like Afro-Latino, just how all of that is connected. Mm -hmm. And so do you think because more people are realizing that, are you starting to see it like more inclusion of Afro-Latino culture when you do see those Hispanic Heritage Month celebrations? Uh, I don't. (laughs) I don't feel like I really see that. But I think where the change is, is that I start to follow groups who are doing things. Mm And it's it's a lot easier to find these groups than there was in the past. I want to allow space for you to share any final thoughts that you have. It is my mission. I want people to think of, you know, we are part of that African diaspora. And I want Latinos to make that the African history to be something that they honor along with the European and indigenous. I want to make sure that people are doing that. So we can change our our history and going further. I feel like if we change our thinking, we start opening up like a something new and mm-hmm. and that's important to me and that's what I'm going to continue to do. That was WUWM race and ethnicity reporter Taryn Powell speaking with Rosalia Hernandez Singh about her journey to connecting with her Afro-Latina identity. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll explore the vision of restoring one of Milwaukee's industrial hotspots. Plus, we'll learn how Flight for Life is always prepared and on standby to save lives. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.